Next, this month's special series, Focus on Women's and Men's Health. ReachMD examines new developments in the diagnosis and treatment of gender-specific medical issues. Can testosterone patch up your sex life? You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, your host, and with me today is Dr. Marjorie Gass, a researcher and clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. Dr. Gass has authored numerous articles, abstracts, and book chapters, and is a member of the NIH National Advisory Council for Complementary and Alternative Medicine, and has a leadership role in the North American Menopause Society. Today, we are discussing new research on testosterone for women with low libido. Welcome, Dr. Gass. Thank you, Lauren. Now, you wouldn't know it from all those internet ads promoting products that promise to revitalize a lackluster sex life, but in fact, the quest for a female equivalent to Viagra has proved somewhat elusive, and as of now, pretty much the only available pharmaceuticals to boost a lagging libido is an oral testosterone estrogen preparation that's intended for treatment of hot flashes or non-FDA-approved testosterone preparations from compounding pharmacies. But there have been a number of studies that have demonstrated testosterone supplementation does have a positive impact on hypoactive sexual desire disorder. So can you start by commenting on those studies, the safety, the efficacy of the testosterone studies? Yes, there are some of them. Some of them are old and, as you say, are for products that were only put on the market for hot flashes. But the most recent round of studies involving the testosterone patch that was manufactured by P&G was a very well-designed study with good enrollment at multi-sites and very good data. The issue became a problem of not having very long-term data. They were at least a year or two. Some of them had extension studies. But the product was presented to the FDA right about the same time as the Women's Health Initiative Mm -hmm. brought out the surprising findings on hormone therapy, estrogen and progestin. So I think the FDA was being very cautious at the time they reviewed this product, and they ended up wanting long-term safety data for things like heart disease, breast cancer, endometrial cancer, and those would be very hard studies for companies to do because they require such large numbers and such. And such a long time. Exactly. You know, but do you think that the FDA withheld approval because those initial studies were testosterone and estrogen together? Because my understanding is that up until your recent study, that all the data regarding efficacy of testosterone was based on studies in which women were also taking estrogen. You're absolutely right. And those assumptions that estrogen was required are what were disproven in this most recent paper, which I think makes it so exciting. Well, tell us about that paper. I'd like to know about the study. This was also a study of that same testosterone patch But the premise was we were going to try it without the estrogen, which many people thought would lead to failure of it to work. Well, that was always the feeling. That's what my understanding was. Yes. And lo and behold, it did work and without estrogen, which I think is just great because then that could be a product that women could use who did not really want to use estrogen. I'd like to get to some of the specifics about the study. Can you start by just defining what hypoactive sexual desire disorder is? Well, the official uh, definition is that women no longer, well, anybody uh, no longer has um, sexual interest, um, interest in sexual activity, has an absence of thoughts and fantasies and dreams that are sexual in nature. And the crucial part that was added more recently was that it 
bothers the person. Right, from that other study that came out, that they really care. (laughs) And I assume uh, that you did not rely on things such as serum levels of testosterone, that this was based more on symptoms? Exactly. Although, of course, the levels were tracked, the serum levels were tracked to, to see where the testosterone therapy placed the woman in the normal range of female testosterone levels. And we're talking serum levels. I assume we're not talking about saliva levels that exactly. we won't even get into today. Okay. We all know that those are not the most accurate way to look at testosterone. And how many women were in the study? There were 814 women in the study, Lauren, at different sites around the country. And it was a 52-week trial. Only 24 weeks were the active therapy, but then there was an extension beyond that to look at safety measures. Tell me how you determined improvement. There were multiple measures of improvement from sexual thoughts to uh, sexual events to distress levels. So that was all really good to have so many different measures, and it turned out to be effective for all those measures. Mm -hmm. And did you find that there was a significant discontinuation rate? I find in my practice that the majority of women that discontinue testosterone discontinue it not because of unpleasant side effects, but it's just not working for them. What was your experience? Yes, there was that, that it was not working for people. There are always some people who are going to have a reaction to adhesive. Mm -hmm. So if that was bothersome to them. But there were really very few people who stopped because of androgenic side effects. Now, there were some. There were two doses studied, the 150 and the 300. And the 300 dosage, which is the most effective, there were some reports of a little bit more facial hair, some acne, those kinds of things. But by and large it was not so bad that people wanted to stop their therapy. And let's talk about results. How did it compare to the earlier studies in which testosterone was given along with estrogen? Was it just as good? It was just as good. Interesting. So now that that's the case, what do you expect the response of the FDA to be? Do you think that they'll be more likely to approve this? I don't know that this is even going to be presented because of the earlier round with the initial data with estrogen. So do you think that there will be an FDA-approved testosterone on the market anytime in the near future? Other products are being investigated, but I do not know how far along they are in the process. This particular patch has been approved in Europe, so it is available to women in Europe. I wonder if there's any way for American women to get it via the Internet. That's usually what happens. I think they can. I have looked into that myself, and there are a couple of websites, uh, some located in Canada, and some that will do an online physician assessment. So given that we can't get FDA-approved testosterone, then we are continuing to do the off-label testosterone options. Just practically speaking as a clinician, do you think that these products work? Do you think that it's reasonable to use them? I do, but patients need to have a realistic expectation because even in these studies where the testosterone patch was found to be effective, there was one to two more events per month. That means sexual encounters per month. It's not a miracle drug. No, it There's is too not. many other aspects to sexuality. That's really true, and we haven't said much about that, but clearly there are many other aspects in terms, especially for women, as to how well they function and how much drive they have. But people who do the compounding, some like to measure the endogenous testosterone level first mm-hmm. because if the woman is already at high normal that's probably not the cause of her problem. If she's in the lower range, then it may be worth trying the medication. Do you think that that's valid, though, given that my understanding is that there's a wide range of normal and that these levels don't really 
give you a good indication as to how someone's going to respond to testosterone treatment? Do you measure levels in your patients? I do. And if someone has relatively high levels, do you ever think they would benefit from testosterone? Or if they have high levels, you just immediately say, this is not worthwhile, you need to address this otherwise? That's usually my approach if it's already high normal. But not that many people are high normal. The other thing people may want to take into consideration is hepatic function, since this would all be metabolized in the liver, and possibly a lipid profile, because Mm -hmm. we do have good data that testosterone can decrease the good cholesterol, the HDL cholesterol. So that might be worth looking at. If some woman already has a level of 35 for her HDL level, that merits some discussion. Sure. Absolutely. If you've just tuned in, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and I'm speaking with Dr. Marjorie Gass, a researcher and clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine about her research on testosterone for women with low libido. So what I'm wondering is, is if you have a woman who has absolutely no bothersome menopausal symptoms other than the libido issues, you know, that she doesn't have hot flashes, she doesn't have insomnia. Do you recommend that you give her estrogen and testosterone together as a first-line treatment, or do you feel that the data is strong enough right now that you could just start with testosterone alone? I think you could start with testosterone alone, and I would like to even back up a step to say that I generally search for other causes of the low libido, in particular relationship issues, stress levels, A number of other things, even other medications, can be a wet blanket to a woman's libido. I think that's so important, particularly the other medications. Can you mention some of the medications that you find are the greatest culprits? Some of the antidepressants, and we don't know for sure about women, but the antihypertensives can sometimes affect their orgasmic capacity at Mm -hmm. least, and then that might have a secondary effect of decreasing their libido. Are you concerned about a woman with an intact uterus taking testosterone alone for long periods of time in terms of endometrial stimulation? Yes. Are there any studies that look at that? No, but there are some ongoing studies right now trying to address that issue more thoroughly. So if you had a patient with testosterone alone, would you approach that the same way as a woman who was on hormone replacement therapy in terms of evaluating the endometrium either by ultrasound or endometrial biopsy if she's spotting? Certainly endometrial biopsy if she's bleeding. But we do know that testosterone can be converted into estrogen. Right. So women who think that if they're taking testosterone think that they're not taking estrogen when in fact that's not the case. That's not the case, and we have to bear that in mind, too, in terms of potential breast cancer issues. Well, that was actually my next question, is, you know, given that it is metabolized to estrogen, but the levels are quite low, do you think that it's even possible, that it's even reasonable to prescribe testosterone to women who have breast cancer? Well, I would have reservations about that. Myself, personally, I'm fairly conservative on those issues of giving women with breast cancer hormones. I know other people may be more comfortable with that, but they are stimulating to some tumor growth. Is there any data regarding serum levels of estrogen in women on long-term testosterone? I have not seen any such data. I'm just wondering if you're aware of any. No, but in these recent studies that were published, they did not see a significant change in estradiol levels, which was very interesting. Right. I'd like to talk a little bit about what's on the horizon, given that testosterone is not going to be for everybody and that, in fact, it's not even available and may not be for the foreseeable future. 
And given that there are many other ways to address hypoactive sexual dysfunction, what's going on as far as research with other drugs now to treat this problem? Well, we're seeing some activity in the area of the SNRIs. Can you tell us more about an SNRI? What is an SNRI? Where we're dealing with the norepinephrine receptors. That's a very interesting area, and the fact that some of these antidepressants out there have been reported to have some improvement in libido. So I look forward to seeing more of those publications and hopefully some submissions to the FDA for those medications because they don't have to be so concerned about the other hormonal effects. Do you ever see anyone prescribing those in an off-label? Yes. And are there any studies looking at the off-label in terms of how much of an effect there is? There are some small studies, short-term small studies, that have indicated a benefit. And are they prescribed in the same dosage as they would be for treatment of depression? Yes. In fact, there were some abstracts out last year with desvenlafaxine and basically show that the lower to mid-level range doses are all that you would probably use. And are there any other drugs on the horizon as far as treating this problem that you're aware of? I think other things are just very early stage and not much is known about them. So years away, right, <laughs> we're, still, yeah, we're still going to be dealing with this. Is there anything else that you would like to add or you would like to talk about in terms of the treatment and identifying women with hypoactive sexual dysfunction? Generally, these women present themselves because it is a distressing problem to them. It may be affecting their relationship because their partner's desire may not have decreased proportionately. So they will generally mention the problem on their own And then it's up to the clinician to explore that if they're comfortable with that topic or hopefully refer them to someone else if they're not. I would add that I think the onus is also on the clinician to bring up the topic because while some women may be able to bring it up, I think we all have a lot of patients who don't mention it either because they're just embarrassed or because they think there's nothing to be done about it anyway. Yes, I think that's a very good point and it can be an important question at all levels, at all ages of our practice. But I think especially for postmenopausal women who also may be dealing with vaginal dryness Mm -hmm. and some dyspareunia. So that's a very important aspect of their health care. Thanks to Dr. Gass, who has been our guest, as we have been discussing alternative approaches to hypoactive sexual disorders. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable from ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Please visit our website at reachmd.com, which features our entire library through on-demand podcasts. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Women's and Men's Health. 